It came to pass after three days that the officers went through the host and they commanded the people saying, when you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the priests, the Levites bearing it, then you shall remove from your place and go after it. Yet there shall be a space between you and it, about 2,000 cubits by measure. Come not near unto it, that ye may know the way by which ye must go, for ye have not passed this way heretofore. And Joshua said unto the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua spake unto the priests, saying, Take up the ark of the covenant, and pass over before the people. And they took up the ark of the covenant and went before the people. And the Lord said unto Joshua, This day will I begin to magnify thee in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. And thou shalt command the priests that bear the ark of the covenant, saying, When ye are come to the brink of the water of Jordan, ye shall stand still in Jordan. And Joshua said, And Joshua said unto the children of Israel, Come hither and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Hereby ye shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the Perizzites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth passeth over before you into Jordan. Now therefore take you twelve men out of the tribes of Israel, out of every tribe a man. And it shall come to pass as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests that bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of Jordan, that the waters of Jordan shall be cut off from the waters that come down from above, and they shall stand upon a heap. And it came to pass when the people removed from their tents to pass over Jordan, and the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people, and as they that bear the ark were come unto Jordan, and the feet of the priests that bear the ark were dipped in the brim of water, of the water, for Jordan, for Jordan overfloweth all his banks all the time of harvest. That the waters which came down from above stood, stood up upon a heap very far from the city Adam, that is beside Zaratan. And those that came down toward the sea of the plain, even the salt sea, failed and were cut off. And the people passed over right against Jericho. And the priests that bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of Jordan, and all the Israelites passed over on dry ground until all the people were passed clean over. And let's pray. Father, again, it's a privilege to come and to study your word. I pray that we will grow closer to you through it, that our faith will be increased, and may everything that is done here this morning honor and glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said um, at the onset about six or seven weeks ago, if, if you have, if you want to contribute, don't be shy about raising your hand and and participating. I have a tendency to just kind of go. So, if you have a comment, feel free to make it. In verse number one, we see that Joshua was an early riser. It says Joshua rose early in the morning. Turn to chapter 6, Joshua chapter 6. Joshua chapter 6, verse 12. It says, And Joshua rose early in the morning. Look at chapter 7, verse 16. We see it says, So Joshua rose early in the morning. 
chapter 8, verse 10. And Joshua rose early in the morning. And there's a pattern here. Turn back to chapter 6, verse 15. It says, And it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose up about the dawning of the day and compassed the city after the same manner seven times. Only on that day they compassed the city seven times. So we see a pattern here that when I would, I would expect that when somebody anticipates they have a lot to do, they get up early. Um, a lot of us probably sometimes make the argument that we don't have enough time when in reality, I know for, for myself, um, if I'm honest, that's not always really the truth. The truth is I probably don't manage my time as well as I should. This idea of rising early, and, and I, I was using uh, my new Thompson Chain Reference Bible to do a word study on, a topical study on this rising early, and it was very interesting. And I don't think I'm making more out of this than really should be. There is a, a definitely, you know, there's a definite pattern in, in Scripture to this. Um, Job 1.5 says that Job rose up early to sacrifice and worship the Lord. And in Psalm 119, 147, and 48, the psalmist says that, and I'm paraphrasing, but they say they were willing to sacrifice sleep early in the morning and late at night in order to study God's Word. And in Mark 135, we know that Jesus rose, says that Jesus rose way before dawn to pray. And in Proverbs chapter 6, Verses 9 through 11, and in Proverbs chapter 24, verses 33 through 34, we're warned that too much sleep leads to poverty. Uh, And throughout the book of Proverbs, it's very clear, Proverbs teaches that too much sleep and laziness go hand in hand. So I don't think I'm making more out of this than than is really there. I think that... um, I think that every time we're given information in the Bible, it's for a reason. I don't think there's any extraneous information. And so I think that the fact that we're told that that Joshua rose up early on numerous occasions is to give us insight. Leaders are go-getters. They're not slothful. And, um, you know, we know in Matthew 26, 36 through 46, Jesus became quite upset with the disciples when he went to pray and they kept falling asleep when he would return to them. So again, I just, you know, I just thought that was worth pointing out that, um, you know, I think sometimes we have a tendency to just read a verse and just kind of gloss over a lot of the information. But I think there's a lot of there's a lot of benefit to really taking the time to see, you know, really exactly what is being said. Also in verse number 1, Joshua chapter 3, verse 1, it says that they were about to pass over the Jordan River. This wasn't new information to them. They had been told in Joshua chapter 1, verse 11, the the officers had given the orders and the commands that they were to prepare themselves because in three days they would pass over the Jordan River. So they were were expecting this. Notice in chapter 2, verse 23, the two spies, when they had returned from the protection of Rahab, it says uh, they passed over. 
the two spies returned, descended from the mountain, and passed over. You know, we we wouldn't even really think a whole lot about that. They were uh, skilled military men. Um, you know, crossing the Jordan River wouldn't be difficult for them. They wouldn't probably have given it too much of a second thought. But uh, getting ready to take millions of people across the Jordan River, that's an entirely different story. And in, you know, in verse 15 there of chapter 3, as we saw, the Jordan overfloweth its banks at this time of year. It was full. And that's the way it is every spring. The snows up on Mount Hermon and up in the Lebanese mountains, 200 miles north, begin to melt and the river begins to fill. And, and the harvest at this time was the barley harvest. But this was quite normal for the river to be full. And, you know, this was, this was a dangerous thing. Uh, we could easily underestimate the difficulty of crossing a river. I know when I got in my car today and drove across the Missouri River, I really didn't give it a second thought other than the fact that I was working on this lesson. But, um, you know, a week or so ago when uh, Clay and I were hauling some firewood, there was a big backup of a, an accident on the South Kennedy Freeway, and so I knew that when I would be returning home from delivering that wood that it would take me a long time to get home because the... You know, the, the traffic was backed up for a mile or two. Well, I went and paid the dollar to go across the, the Bellevue toll bridge and, you know, and I, you know, it was just pretty incidental. I didn't think twice about it. It was really convenient. And, you know, I was reading in, uh, online that between 1840 and 1860, over 300 people died crossing the Missouri River heading west as, you know, people were heading out west for the, for the Mormon settlements and the various settlements that were taking place. And, you know, we really don't think a whole lot about it. We just drive over the river and we, you know, it's pretty routine now. Um, I thought it was interesting. I read that uh, it took it cost a dollar to take an entire wagon on a ferry across the Missouri River in 1850. That's what I paid to go across the toll bridge 163 years later. But I'm sure those people were glad to pay the dollar. But the people were being obedient. Um, God said, get to the river and get ready to cross. And that's what they did. They got there and they were, they were ready to go. And they all knew that they knew what the Lord was capable of doing. Some of them had seen firsthand when they were young, God parting the Red Sea. Yep, certainly those that hadn't seen it certainly had heard about it. Uh, as we, as we saw a week or two ago. Rahab had heard of it, and she recounted the story to the two spies. So even though they may not they may not have known exactly how they were going to get across the river, they certainly knew that God could provide a way. Verse number two came to pass after three days that the officers went through the host. Now we don't know exactly why they had to wait three days, um, but nevertheless, they they were dependent on God's timetable. We don't always know why we have to wait for certain things, but we are to accept God's timetable. We are to obey the, the commands that we are given. And the officers, um, these are the same officers that were, that were giving the instructions in chapter 1 that had told them to prepare for this three days earlier. And I don't know exactly what all being an officer entailed, but I, I know when I was... Uh, reading back through the the book of Numbers, the chap, Numbers chapter eleven, it it kind of seems like the the uh, 
the terms officer and elder are used a little bit interchangeably. So certainly older men that were probably well-respected that served as liaisons between Joshua and the, the congregation. And, of course, the host here simply means that it's the army or the multitude of people. Verse number three, the instructions are to follow the ark, the ark of the covenant. And this was a visible sign of God's presence. This was the uh, indication of God leading them. Numbers chapter 10, verses 35 through 36 tell us that, that this was, uh, again, the sign of God's presence among them. The ark is mentioned, chapters 3 and 4 kind of go together. They really form a kind of a summary of the same event. I didn't read chapter 4 because I don't really anticipate that we're going to have time to get to chapter 4 today, but they really do go together. And the ark is mentioned 17 times in chapters 3 and 4. So there's really no missing the, the point of you know the real emphasis here. And of course, the attention is on God. The attention is on God and His working among the people. Joshua and the, the Israelites, they're almost merely relegated to being spectators in the story. And that's the way it should be. Uh, you know, we kind of teach our children, you know, they sing that little song, Joshua fought, fought the battle of Jericho. But really, that's contradictory to what the Bible teaches. I mean, Joshua chapter 20 teaches very clearly that God fought the battle of Jericho. And I know I'm splitting hairs, and I'm not certainly arguing that they shouldn't sing that, but I'm just saying there is... Uh, a distinction there, and Joshua deflects the glory anytime he can to the Lord and gives the Lord credit for that. The ark also contained God's promises and contained the Ten Commandments, which were a reminder of, of the people of their responsibility towards God. And they were they trusted the leadership. They didn't have to have they didn't have to receive all of their directions and all of their commands directly from Joshua or for that matter directly from the Lord. And certainly the Lord could have done that. The Lord could, he could work that way in our lives today. He doesn't choose to do that. He gives us commands through his word. He helps us understand his word by giving us pastors and teachers. But he could have chosen to speak to us directly, but he doesn't. And that's the way that it was at this time. For whatever reason, God chooses to many times communicate to these people through the officers. There's a established hierarchy. Uh, Deuteronomy 31, uh, you don't need to turn there, but Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 3, 6, and 8 all say that God said He would go before them. And yet many times we see here in Joshua chapter 1 of this book that, that God says He would be with them. And obviously there's no contradiction. The, the, those two term, Those two phrases are used fairly interchangeably. They're, they're both equally true. You know, they, they we're really splitting hairs to, to even really try to make a distinction in, in some sense as to the difference between God going for them and God going with them. But yet this is a fulfillment of that prophecy. In, in Deuteronomy and in the book of Numbers, Moses had told the people that God would go before them and the, the ark would go the, before them. And so that's what's happening here. Verse number four, they were to keep a half a mile away from the ark. They, they say here about 2,000 cubits, which is about uh, 3,000 feet. It's approximately half a mile. It's, it's a fair distance. And there's a lot of theories on why this distance was required. One theory is that it demonstrated that it was not, this distance demonstrated that it was not necessary for 
people to protect the ark. These priests were way out in front of the multitude. They were unarmed. There were probably enemies on the other side of the river that would be able to view this particular activity. And so in some ways, this would have been provocative, sending out people who were unarmed, uh, you know, putting them in danger's way. And yet that's what God had commanded be done. And so that may have been one of the reasons. Another theory is, is that it had given it would give their enemies time to see it so that they would know that God was leading his people. As Rahab had said, this event, she anticipated that their total arrival was going to strike fear and terror in the in the heart of all the people. And Moses had actually predicted that. A third reason, a third theory on why this distance was required was to show proper reverence and respect for God and his holiness. That's actually very consistent with Exodus chapter 19, verses 12 and 13. When God was about to give the Ten Commandments, he had told Moses to warn the people to be very careful that any person or beast who even came near Mount Sinai would be killed instantly. Um, in 1 Samuel 6:19, it says many people were killed just for looking into the ark. Of course, we know in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 7, Uzzah was killed for touching the ark. So obviously there was a very, uh, you know, they were supposed to be very careful about how the ark was handled. And so it was to be treated with, with great reverence and respect. Now today, fortunately, we live in a, in a different dispensation. We are not under that law. We, we don't have an ark that goes before us. And we, we can go boldly to God. We have that privilege of just coming to him. I would think that there's certainly a warning here that we ought to, you know, take notice of we should never treat God we should never go to God you know with a cavalier attitude or one of irreverence or disrespect uh, you know we need to treat him with the same kind of respect that he demanded at that time another theory that uh, was the reason for the distance and I think this is the one that the verse kind of lends itself towards again if you look at verse number four Starting in the middle, it says, Come not near unto it, that ye may know that the way by which ye must go, for ye have not passed this way heretofore. So really, the, the reason stated in the verse was so that, they could, so that everyone could see the ark, so that it could lead them. They were venturing on new territory. The pillar of cloud had ceased. That was no longer uh, hovering over the ark or the, the pillar of fire by night. And so uh, there was a great distance given here so that everyone could see exactly the way in which they were to go. And that's really kind of how verse 4 reads. Verse number 5, And Joshua said unto the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Now what does it mean to sanctify ourselves? It's an interesting question. Seek forgiveness for our sins. That's probably part of it. Make sure that our hearts are right with God. In Numbers chapter 11, verse 18, Moses tells the people to sanctify themselves after they had complained about God's provision or lack of His provision. Uh, You know, my paraphrase there is that Moses told the people they needed an attitude adjustment. And and they did. They were uh, very much murmuring and complaining. Uh, Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. Samuel tells Jesse and his sons 
to sanctify themselves before they come to the sacrifice. I just want to read the verse, 1 Samuel 16, 5. And he said, Peaceably, I am come to sacrifice unto the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and called them to the sacrifice. So I think part of this sanctification means to set aside the cares of this world, to relinquish those things, um, to come, to, to, uh, to have the opportunity to worship in such a way as that we are focused on God and not focused on everything that is going on outside of that. I know for myself personally, um, many times on Sunday, I have to consciously remind myself that I am here to worship, that that's what I'm coming here for. Um, you know, it's easy to get to the point where you're just kind of going through the motions and things become repetitive. You know, it's Sunday morning, I get up, I go to church, that's because that's what I do on Sunday morning. And it's not supposed to be that way. It's supposed to be a very deliberate effort. We're supposed to sanctify ourselves. We're supposed to put ourselves into the proper, you know, we're to prepare ourselves in such a way that we can worship properly. We're to, you know, when I come, I can sing, I can give, I can teach, I can learn, I can praise God, I can do all of those things. But sometimes if I'm not consciously reminding myself that I need to do those things, I just come and I think, wow, you know, it's fun to be here. We can have donuts and we can talk to our friends and we can go out to lunch. And that's not the reason that we do all this. You know, we're here to worship the Lord. So I think that certainly is a part of what is meant by sanctification, is to prepare themselves, to prepare their hearts to worship the Lord. I think there's also an outward preparation that takes place. Uh, turn to Exodus chapter 19. I think there's a, uh, a lot of emphasis given today on... on uh, preparing ourselves inwardly, and rightfully so, but I don't think we can do that simply to the exclusion of outward preparation. Exodus chapter 19, verse number 10. This is where Moses is getting ready to give them the law coming down from Mount Sinai, just preceding the, the Ten Commandments. Verse number 10, And the Lord said unto Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes. In verse number 14, it says, And Moses went down from the mount unto the people and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. Um, outward preparation symbolized inward consecration. I like the way Matthew Henry puts it. Even if it's purely symbolic, clean clothes underscored the need for clean hearts. Um, turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 16. I should have had you keep your, your finger there. I think one of the verses that is probably somewhat misused. I know I've certainly misused it plenty of times. It's 1 Samuel 16, 7. We may use this verse to argue that the Lord doesn't look on the outward appearance, but I don't think that's what the verse teaches. I don't think that's what it says. I was thinking about this verse in particular as Pastor was talking about the way we are treating our bodies Wednesday night with, with regards to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Making the, you know, Pastor was making the argument that God cares about every aspect of the way in which we treat our bodies. Not just inwardly, but outwardly. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, But the Lord said unto Samuel, 
Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Now that verse doesn't say that God doesn't look on the outward appearance. It doesn't say that. It says he doesn't see as man sees. In other words, Samuel was focused, you know, the the thing he noticed about Eliab in the preceding verse was that he was tall and that he was of a good countenance. He was merely only looking on the outward appearance. What this verse is saying is that God sees much more than that. It doesn't say God is ignoring the outward appearance. It doesn't doesn't say that he doesn't look at the outward appearance. It's just saying he, he sees so much more than that. He sees a person's heart. And, of course, Samuel wasn't able to do that. He didn't know Eliab's heart, nor did he know David's heart. So uh, there's a difference there. Proverbs chapter 7 tells us about the young man who lacks wisdom and is seduced by the subtle adulterous woman who's dressed in the attire of a harlot. Well, what is that saying? It's saying that God tells us there's certainly a style of clothing that conveys a message of immorality. So, To make the argument that it doesn't matter how I look or how I dress, I don't think that that's supported by Scripture. Moses told them to wash their clothes, as we looked at in Exodus chapter 19. He was saying, don't come as you are. That's what he was saying. I mean, I don't know. know, There's no other way to look at it. What he was saying was, come looking your best. I mean, that's the way I look at those commands to wash their clothes. Um, so I think the, you know, the, again, a lot of the arguments that I think people are trying to use today really are are kind of weak. They're really not supported by by Scripture. Yes, certainly our inward, our heart is very important, and our inward appearance is certainly something that we need to uh, make corrections with in, in regard to sanctifying ourselves. But that doesn't exclude the outward appearance. And, you know, out of a crowd that size, I mean, there were millions of people. I would imagine there were some who failed to do that. There were probably some that failed to sanctify themselves. Because, again, every time we read this, the command is to sanctify ourselves. It's not for someone else to sanctify us and do it for us. It's for us, to, in humility, to sanctify ourselves, to to come to the conclusion that we need to make changes in order to prepare ourselves to worship the Lord. So, you know, again, in a, in a crowd of that size, I'm sure there were some who failed to sanctify themselves. They failed to prepare themselves to worship God and, and didn't receive a blessing as a result of it. So I know I, in my life, uh, if, if I'm not getting something out of the service, then the problem's probably with me. You know, the problem isn't with the church, it isn't with the pastor, it isn't with the sermon. It's If I'm not getting something out of the service, you know, I need to reflect on my own heart and my own lack of preparation for getting something out of the service and stop looking to point the finger in, in some other direction. And so I think a lot of people, you know, if, they were, if they're wanting to make the argument, well, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go to church today because I just don't get anything out of it, well... You know, I, I think the argument is being here. All these people are being told to sanctify themselves because if they don't, that's going to be their result. They're not going to get anything out of it. Or they're not going to get out of it what they should get out of it. 
Anybody have anything to add before we move on to verse 6? Joshua chapter 3, verse 6. Verse number 6. And Joshua spake unto the priests, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass over before the people. And they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. Now, a lot of, a lot of commentators pointed out that this was highly unusual for the priests. Um, normally, the Kohathites carried the Ark. Numbers chapter 4, 15. Verse 15. All priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. Matter of fact, very few Levites were priests. In order to be a priest, you had to have descended through the line of Aaron, which was four generations from Levi. And not to diminish the role and responsibility of those other Levites, um, you know, they had responsibilities. They were the administrators. They were to tear down the tabernacle and set it up and, and you know, do all of those things. I mean, they had certainly responsibilities, but... Um, you know, the priests had special duties, and in this case, they're being told to carry the ark, and this was a little bit unusual. This was somewhat of a special occasion. Um, normally, the priests would go in, and they would cover the ark, and then the Kohathites would come in, and they would put the, the poles in into the rings, and then they would carry the ark off, and, you know, that was that was just the, the way it was done differently. But, uh, you know, I just thought I'd point that out, that in this case, it seemed to be that there was something a little bit more special going on here. Also, uh, it's been noted that because of because this would have been unusual, I mean, obviously, this whole this whole incident of crossing the Jordan River is a little bit unusual. But um, these priests that would have been carrying the ark, they were unarmed. And, you know, again, they're way out there on the front lines. And so this would have taken great faith, great courage, great uh, Courage to be, you know, obedient to the Lord. You know, you're putting yourself out there and anticipating that the enemy is right there on the other side waiting for you. Verse number seven, and the Lord said unto Joshua, this day I will begin to magnify thee in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that I was with Moses. I now as I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. God intends to show the people publicly that Moses is the full, or that Joshua is the full successor to Moses. God had already told Joshua these things privately in chapter one, but now He intends to make it public and make it uh, and make everyone understand clearly that Joshua is uh, the full replacement for Moses, and so He's going to promote him. He's going to honor him, and uh, Joshua doesn't seek that type of thing. Joshua is. Uh, you know, as I've studied the book of Joshua, uh, Joshua is just the model of humility. Uh, he's not clamoring for this kind of magnification. He's not asking the Lord for any of this. As a matter of fact, look at verse number 10. Joshua just, just does just the opposite. He tries to deflect any glory that would come to him. Verse number 10, Joshua said, Hereby ye shall know that the living God is among you and that he will drive out. the. He's going to drive out all of those nations. Joshua's not trying to take any of this glory for himself, not at all. And those are the kind of people that God is going to use. Those are the kind of people that God is going to exalt. Those that are looking for the glory, God will refuse. You know, as the New Testament says, those that want to be great, they're going to be made small. And those that want to, you know, that aren't seeking it, God will exalt those people. So Joshua, you know, he's a great example here of humility, but yet God chooses to exalt him for whatever reason. And he's going to do it in such a way as that he's going to, he's going to, Joshua is not going to appear as in any way being inferior to Moses. 
it, the, the miracle that Moses was a part of, that God worked through Moses, that is the most commonly uh, you know, known miracle that everyone seems to, to understand is the parting of the Red Sea. You know, that's what you see Charlton Heston doing, you know, on, on television. I mean, that's, that's Moses. And Joshua's not going to come short in that. He's going to be a part of a, of a miracle that is the same type of thing. God is going to part the Jordan River. And so in that way, he is, uh, you know, many people, again, knew that Moses was associated with that particular event. And so it, it makes sense that Joshua is going to be viewed in that same light after this event has taken place. And so they're going to have complete confidence in Joshua, as they'll need. They're getting ready to embark on a war that's going to take seven years, and they're going to have to have complete confidence in Joshua to know that when he speaks, they will know that he is passing on the word of the Lord. Verse number 8, And thou shalt command the priests that bear the ark of the covenant, saying, When ye are come to the brink of the water of Jordan, ye shall stand still in Jordan. So we see again, Joshua has the authority to command the priests. Again, you know, as I stated earlier, God could have direct, God could have given the commandments directly to these priests, but He doesn't. He chooses to work through Joshua. And again, the same, the same way that, you know, He works in our lives today. I don't hear an audible voice. God doesn't speak to me directly, but He certainly speaks to me through His Word, and He uses, uh, other preachers and teachers to expound upon that and to teach me his ways through his word. And so I don't feel cheated. I don't feel in any way less, um, you know, that, that God thinks any less of me because he doesn't speak to me directly. He, this is the what he this is the way that he has chosen to do it. And that's his prerogative. And, you know, in verse number eight here, it says they shall stand still in the Jordan River. That's very deliberate. They are to stand still because the point that's being made is that at the precise moment that their feet hit the water, everyone is to recognize that that miracle that God has predicted is going to occur. And so there will be, it will be unmistakably the Lord's doing. Verse number 9, the people are called to attention to hear the word of the Lord. And then, of course, verse number 10, as I already kind of talked about, uh, Joshua, you know, he says, don't miss this. You know, don't miss this. The miracles that you are going to see are going to cement your faith. The miracles that you are going to see are going to convince you that your God is real, that he is a living God. This is in stark contrast to the God of the Canaanites and to the God of all the heathen nations, as we know. They're dead gods. They, they can't do anything. They can't, they can't speak. They can't listen. They can't, they can't anything. When I was teaching the junior high Sunday school class 20 years ago, I used to give the kids a, a big lump of Play-Doh and I would say, now make yourself a God. And then I would, at the end of the class, I would tell them to smash that God just to illustrate the point of the absolute ridiculousness and foolishness of worshiping something that they just made themselves. And that's what they, but that's what all of these heathen nations did. And so Joshua is saying, we worship the living God, the God that is able to perform these types of miracles, the God that has all of this power. Verse number 11 says, Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth passeth over before you into Jordan. So God himself is leading the way. And uh, he's the rightful owner of the land. God is taking the land. Uh, This phrase, again, isn't incidental. He says, the Lord of all the earth. You know, God doesn't just own the promised land. He's not just taking 
ownership of the promised land. He owns the entire earth. He just happens to be leading his people into the promised land at this particular time. But uh, he owns it all. He's entitled to it all. He commands it all, not just some parts of the earth. Verse number 12, now therefore take you 12 men out of the tribes of Israel, out of every tribe of man. We'll talk about that more next week because that really has to do with chapter 4. Verse number 13, And it shall come to pass as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests that bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of Jordan, that the waters of Jordan shall be cut off from the waters that come down from above, and they shall stand upon a heap. Now, This miracle is chosen to show that only God has the power to alter creation in this way. Uh, The same power that he used when he divided the water from the land during creation, he can use to do that same thing now. It's unmistakably that God wants it to be known that it's a miracle. He could have chosen many other ways to have allowed them to cross. He could have caused a long drought that would have dried up the river. He could have caused the temperature to plummet so that they could have walked across the river as it was frozen. He could have used strong winds, which he did do in Exodus chapter 14, verse 21. It says when Moses parted the Red Sea, it was because of a strong east wind that held back the water and there were walls of water on both sides. But yet God doesn't choose to do that. Uh, He chooses this means of having the priest step in the water and then the water, the water abates. Now, there is some debate about how or exactly where this parting of the water took place. Uh, And I think there's, uh, you know, uh, strong arguments on both sides. Um, Some say that a landslide caused the banks of the Jordan River to fall in and block the river. Uh, There's actually evidence, um, even pictures of it from 80 years ago in 1927, which was the last time it occurred. That's happened six times over the last several hundred years. In 1927, An earthquake took place that caused the the banks of the Jordan River to fall in. And so much of the banks fell in that the river was backed up for over 20 hours before the water became high enough to run over that, you know, that dam that had formed and begin to recede all that. Um, And some people make the argument that that's what happened here because Judges chapter uh, 5 verse 4 says that there was trembling associated with this event. So some people say, yeah, that means that that God used an earthquake to Okay, you know, maybe he did. I don't know. Um, It doesn't really matter. It's no less a miracle, uh, you know, as people begin to try to explain some of these things away. Just like God using winds to part the Red Sea, it's no less a miracle. The miracle is in God's prediction of it, God's performing of it, God's timing it so that it takes place immediately as the feet of the priests hit the water. Other people argue no. Uh, Verse number 16, which says the waters stood up on a heap. That describes an event that would be more like the walls of water that we see in the the parting of the Red Sea. Um, The the Bible clearly states that as the the water was parted, the the waters that had been flowing just continued to run on down into the Dead Sea, leaving a, a large opening. So at the point that they crossed, which was four miles north of the Dead Sea, if the wall of water was right there, well, then that still would have left about four miles of you know, cleared of dry riverbed for them to to march across because all of that water would have flowed into the Dead Sea. But other people make the argument that what verse 16 is saying here when it says, and rose up upon a heap very far from the city Adam that is beside Zeratan, people are suggesting that it's saying that the 
actual stopping, the blockage of the water took place up near right at the city of Adam. And so if that were the case, if that's where, and by the way, in 1927, that is where the banks of the Jordan River collapsed and held back the water for 20 hours. Now, if that did happen, then that means there would be a 20-mile opening of the Jordan River from the, the top of the Dead Sea on up to the city of Adam. Um, in any case, you know, a large area, a large opening would have been required for millions of people to have gone through with all of their cattle and, and everything else. Um, again, I, I like I said, I, I kind of studied that for quite a while, and I think there were uh, probably equal equal divisions on exactly how this parting of the water took place and exactly where it took place, but um, it's no less a miracle. Anybody have any comment on that? But the river was very high. I mean, we were told that in verse 15. We, we know that it was that time of year where, um, you know, it, it was the, this, you know, the winter snows were melting. This was... Th- uh, without a doubt, the most difficult time of the year to pass. And, and again, there's no mistake about why that happened. God orchestrates circumstances so that he makes things seem as, you know, the be, to be the most difficult. He wants things to look impossible to man because there's no level of difficulty with the Lord. It doesn't matter what time of year it would have been. I mean, it doesn't make it any more difficult for him. But because it makes it more difficult for us, God says, well, I'll choose the time of the year when, you know, when the waters are the highest. And that's when I'll perform my work so that he will get that much more glory. And it will be that much more unmistakable that it was his power that did this. In Judges chapter 7, verse 2, God says that he... He tells Gideon that he was going to reduce that he reduced his army from thirty two thousand to three hundred. And he says there's no guessing as to the reason that he did it. He says, I'll tell you why I did it, because I don't want you guys running around bragging about how good you are. God made it so that there were three hundred soldiers fighting one hundred and thirty five thousand Midianites to make it to make sure there was no doubt as to how that battle was won. And it was the Lord's doing. And that's what God specializes in. He takes what seems like an impossible situation to us and, uh, you know, makes it, makes it look easy, just performs that type of a miracle. So again, um, now one of the, one of the arguments for the, the, um, the, the banks of the Jordan River having collapsed up near the city of Adam or, or by this Zaratan is that um, the closest major contributing uh, river into the Jordan River is the Jabbok River. And in 1927, when the banks of the Jordan River collapsed, it was just south of Adam and Zaratan, which is just south of where that other river feeds into the Jordan River. So the, the, the point there is that, you know, it accomplishes the stopping of the water entirely. If the if the banks of the river had collapsed north of where the Jabbok River feeds in, well, then that water would have still been running down, you know, just would have been a smaller Jordan River. So, again, I mean, you know, there's a lot of arguments on both sides as to exactly which one of these occurred. Uh, again, I don't know that it really makes a whole lot of difference. Clearly, it was a miracle of the Lord. Um, you know, part part of the argument uh, for the wall of water actually being visible uh which would be similar to, to the, which would be the same as the, the water that was 
literally standing in heaps and walls as they parted as they gone through the Red Sea. Part of the argument there is verse number 17. It says, And the priests that bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of Jordan, and all the Israelites passed over on dry ground until all the people were passed clean over Jordan. People think that the emphasis there is that it's really drawing attention to the fact that what these priests were doing was quite remarkable. In other words, they were, you know, if this wall of water was visible to them, they were unshaken, they were unmoved, they were not detoured. And so, you know, this is a statement of their faith, you know, the fact that they stood firm. Um, you know, so that's part of the argument. And, and you know, that really goes along with, with verse 16 when it says the water stood up on heaps. That's, you know, as I as I look at the arguments, you know, certainly the Lord could have used the, the, the banks of the river having been collapsed during an earthquake to, to you know, to block the to to block the water. But why didn't he just say that in verse 16? <laughs> I don't know. Yes. Uh, Kurt. Right, right. 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 Yeah, no, that's that's what I thought. I, I also looked at verse 18 and thought that kind of lended towards the waters being right there. You know, right where just... You know, kind of like during the, the parting of the Red Sea, right, right there where they were getting ready to cross. Because, yeah, the, 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 the thing seems to be there that, you know, it seems as though as soon as the priests got their foot out, I mean, the waters were literally right there to the very top of the bank, just like they had been before they stepped in. Glenn? Yeah, and part of the miracle is the fact that it was dry. You know, the water could have stopped running, but that doesn't. I mean, years ago when 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 we had a drought in '91, I remember my pond was really low, and so I drove my pickup down there, and I was driving along the edge of the pond. Well, it started to sink in. Very foolish thing to do. The wa- the ground was as dry as can be. There was a hard crust on top, but six six inches below, it was just complete mud. And yet, these people didn't have that problem. They just all went across, and the Bible makes it perfectly clear that it was dry ground. It would have taken a while to have dried, to have dried if the waters had just, you know. So there was obviously a miracle just in the drying aspect of this event. Anyone else? Right. Yeah, yeah, there's always varying depths. I mean, that's one of the deceiving things about, that's you know, one of the dangerous things about rivers is I've walked across the Nishinabotna River and most of it's knee length, but sometimes you'll take a step and then you're six feet in, you know, that, that's very cold. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, we see in here in chapter three that the 40 the year exodus ends the same way that it started. You know, they came through the waters, God parted, and now they're, they're leaving the wilderness, entering the promised land the same way that they had left Egypt. 
Anyone else? We're about out of time. All right, well, you're dismissed.